Hello, and welcome to Agents of Nonprofit. My name is Alexander Lapa, and I'm here to speak with everyday superheroes helping nonprofits using technology. Joining me today is Miriam Dix to talk about operational cultures and creating operational cultures within a nonprofit. Miriam, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Alex. Glad to be here. So for people who are hearing you for the very first time, could you explain a bit about who you are and what you do? Well, again, my name is Miriam Dix, and I'm a management consultant which is pretty odd in the uh, nonprofit sphere <laughs> because most of the times you may come across consultants that are working on development or they may be working on capacity building and they may be working on um, communication skills. And I like to focus on how people work together, how processes are developed and how we use both people and processes for planning. Um, that is really the basics of operations and operations consulting as I relate it to the nonprofit sector. And so I'm a management consultant, been doing that for the last, oh my gosh, a consultant probably for the last 10 years and working with nonprofits for the last three years or so. Um, so yeah, that's that's what I do. I'm based in Greenville, South Carolina. So three years, what made you switch from the for-profit world to the nonprofit world? COVID. <laughs> To be quite honest, <laughs> I, uh, I have a healthcare background in that I worked with a lot of on the mergers and acquisitions side of the house where we would look at small, independent organizations. When I say small, small is in comparison to um, major for-profit corporations like uh, for-profit hospital systems, right, that might be publicly traded. So when I say small, I mean independent organizations that may be categorized as small businesses. And I would work with those individual businesses to help understand how they actually perform their services, how they operated as an organization, so that we could uh, take time to integrate them into a new system, a larger system, and make sure that we have uh, included their specific uh, ways of operating into a larger operating model. And so that gave me a really good insight as to going into the organization, really uh, assessing it for its operational capacity and its culture, and then being able to um, make sure that they were acculturated, if you will, into a new organization. And during COVID, because of the work that I do, you know, when it comes to operations um, consulting, there was an opportunity for nonprofits to really be served well when it came to maybe changing their structure and their dynamics because of how COVID really put an emphasis on organizations needing to uh, go remote, right? And we know that if you're going to be a remote organization, you need to make sure there's structures in place to support that remote work. And uh, having done a lot of work with restructuring organizations <laughs> through the, the whole management, or excuse me, the whole mergers and acquisition work that I did, I had a very keen sense and eye to be able to do that. And so it just happened to be that I was, I made contact with some local nonprofits in my area and they, you know, heard about the work that I was doing and my background. They were like, oh my gosh, we need you. That is not something that we have really um, in our wheelhouse uh, when it comes to the types of consultants that we have access to. And that's where it took off. <laughs> Back when I lived in Boston, maybe 20 years ago, I met a management consultant and I was really impressed because she basically told me that she goes into companies and she tells presidents and CEOs what to do. And I thought that was a really, really cool job. So the, the the perception that I have, at least, of management consulting is that is that that she she definitely flavored my perception of it. So, 
would you say that something which is that is that it's obviously a summary, a very very short one, but is that something that you agree with, or would you add more 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 color or flavor to that sentence just to make sure that people understand what a management consultant does typically? So that statement is pretty um, concise, <laughs> but it, I think it is accurate because at the end of the day, one of the things that I believe about leaders, uh, especially nonprofits, is that many of them are very bright. They are very resourceful. They know what they need to do, but sometimes they're too close to the work. They have a proximity issue. So having someone come in and look at what they're trying to accomplish, what is the vision of the organization, and how can we best get there, given what uh, structures you have in place. I partner with leaders. I don't necessarily tell them what to do (laughs) because I want everyone to believe and understand that they are, uh, they're superstars in their own organizations. Sometimes they just need a little support. They need someone who is not in the weeds as they are to come up, think of that 50,000 foot level with them to understand how is it that they can get beyond maybe where they're stuck to get where they're going to meet their mission. Yeah, it's a, it's a better. I like the idea of partnering with leaders because you're right. I've seen it uh, in many projects where the people involved are just so focused on what they're doing that they miss the forest from the trees. So having mm-hmm. that perspective of someone who knows the business, they understands the landscape, can tell you, you know, here you are geographically and based on your vision, this is where you need to go and here's why kind of thing is, is a valuable help. In terms of operational capacity, so how would you define, I guess, the relationship between, or maybe it's a subset, but as a management consultant, as you're trying to build this operational capacity, operational culture, uh, what does that mean in the realm of nonprofits? So when it comes to uh, the nonprofit space, so management consulting, it you know there are several different aspects to it. You know, I have financial, technical, and I specialize in operations consulting. So when it comes to working with nonprofits, I'm really trying to narrow down how it is that they can best perform the work that they have to do. And, and sometimes that means what systems do you need to have in place because maybe they're doing things manually <laughs> or what automations you need to have in place because maybe they're touching things too many times or even how is it that they can best work together because sometimes people are not on the same page with the work that they're doing. Everyone's working really hard. They're just going in different directions. <laughs> so how can we bring them together? And then also the last piece is how can we use the data that you already have and that you're already collecting your organization to make better decisions? So that's, I think, the four key areas, if you will, of what it looks like for an operations management consultant to come in to support your organization. So we're looking at the people, the processes, the reporting, and how all that is galvanized into moving you forward to meet mission. Let's imagine a nonprofit that's just starting off or has recently started off because they tend to be more of a, a passion project where it's just mm-hmm. move, like you said, moving in all different directions, working hard, but not necessarily all aligned. Is there a typical moment you find where this kind of service becomes not only just useful, but not necessary, but very, very valuable because I must imagine there's some kind of threshold to get there. Out of the gates, you're focusing on just getting your feet wet, grounded, however expression you want to use. But at some point, having this kind of structure, these best practices, these best um, methods in place is necessary. So is there a certain moment in time where you find that 
your services are best suited for, or is it something else? I'm glad that you said this because, you know, when it comes to organizations that I work with, a lot of times there is, well, let me back up to say, organizations typically in the nonprofit space, they do start as a passion project, right? So someone has a passion for something that's, you know, going on in the community that there's not an organization already filling this need or the government is not filling that need and they start off and they're all gung-ho about doing the work that they know needs to be done. And what typically happens, and I say this often, is passion leads and systems come later. <laughs> so we just, we do the work, we do the work, we do the work, and then we realize, oh my gosh, we've got so much work to do. And now we're kind of doing it in a way that's not maybe as organized as it could be uh, because they have not built the structures um, at the same time as the work you know, that was being done in the community is being done, right? And so that back office, those administrative structures really need to be put in place. When I typically get called in to work with an organization is when they begin to have what I call leaky pipes. <laughs> their growth is putting pressure on their existing system. The way they've done things, they've always done it this way. And then all of a sudden they get this new grant or they have an influx, COVID happened. And now the services that you provide, everyone needs it. And so you have this influx of, of business, if you will, of opportunity, but your systems don't support that. So now you're bursting at the seams. The way you used to do things no longer works. And you've got to figure out how can we manage this, <laughs> this, this, uh, this moving target, if you will, of all the things that we have going on. And maybe we don't have enough people. Maybe we don't have the right, you know, um, equipment. Maybe we don't have, I mean, there's so many things that could be done uh, to manage this, this newfound growth, but we're at a disadvantage because we don't know exactly what to do. And that's where I typically come in and help a nonprofit understand where they are, what they need to do. For the nonprofit that's just starting out, you just opened your doors this year, or maybe it's been a year, you probably haven't gotten to the point where you know exactly where your sweet spots are, <laughs> right? And so you're still trying new things. You're still trying, let's try this system. Let's try this. Let's do that. Because you maybe have, you know, a, a couple of new grants and you're serving some folks in the community, but you're not quite solid in this is our identity and this is what we do and this is how we do it. It's when you've grown to that point where you know what you do, you know who you are, and you know the clients that you serve, but you've had this influx where what you started with, that skeleton that you or that blueprint that you had, no longer suits <laughs> your current situation. That's when I'll come in and help understand how we can adjust the blueprint to make sure that you can continue to serve at the highest capacity possible. But you're right. It's that passion that that starts it, but it's the growth that's when it changes. <laughs> One of my favorite examples, just to use a concrete example in using uh, CRM, is when you're a small nonprofit, for example, you can use uh, Excel, right, as this type of CRM because yes. you're only one person. It mm -hmm. works through even pen and paper. Well, I wouldn't recommend ever pen and paper, but let's go with Excel. Uh -huh. It might be fine for one person. You could even pass it around the team if you need to. But once yep. you become two, three, four people, it needs to update things at the same time. Excel, Excel breaks down. There are limits. The pipes break mm -hmm. to your mm -hmm. user analogy. So moving to a, a proper CRM would be one way to improve it. So when you look at that organization, you mentioned people, equipment, process. So this seems like a very holistic perspective. Like you're not just looking at one facet. You're looking at the whole thing and then adjusting the blueprint based on where they want to go, right? Yeah, and I get in trouble for that a little bit. 
I'm a little bit of a trouble starter. How so? Um, <laughs> because this, I liken it to if you're calling a consultant into an organization, you're calling them for their expertise. And when you call someone in for their expertise, the best thing you can do is give them an opportunity to assess your needs so that they can give you the best advice possible. And assessing your needs from an operations standpoint, work doesn't happen in a vacuum. So we need to understand how you work operationally so that we can give you um, advice that fits your culture. For example, if I were to come into an organization and see that, let's use our example, they're using a lot of spreadsheets when they really need a database type <laughs> platform where everyone can put data into one system and run a report and everyone gets the same uh, information out of that report. Well, if I come into the organization and you have a demographic that's not tech savvy or you have um, you have lots of different hardware, <laughs> you've got Mac, you got PCs, you got some are old and some are new. And um, and then also you don't have a central repository for document storage, <laughs> right? So everyone saves things on their individual computers and there's nowhere for, you know, and, and maybe you do have some common storage, but everyone's using something different. So one person's using Drive, another person's using, uh, let's say Google Drive, and then you have OneDrive and, and they're not all talking to each other. Well, even if I gave you, a, a way to manage information, um, let's say that's on that spreadsheet, just so you can have a more succinct way of reporting. If I did not take into consideration your hardware or your network or any other pieces to that, I could really give you a solution that you still can't implement because I didn't do a full assessment uh, and even on the people, right, that are in the organization, that the plan that I give may include training. Everyone's not on the same page with, you know, their understanding of certain platforms. And so there may need to be some uniformity there or conformity there when it comes to the systems that are being used, hardware, um, as well as software, training. Um, they may have a culture where they have tried initiatives and failed. I wouldn't know any of that if I had not done an assessment. And then what will happen is I would probably try to provide this information and then once you receive it and you try to put it in place and because those things have not been accounted for, you're like, oh, we just wasted, we just wasted money <laughs> because that plan did not work. <laughs> and I really push for an organization to have an assessment done before any of these strategies are developed or implemented so that we can have an adoption rate that's high. So we can have a successful implementation. And um, some folks, some organizations, they really just push back and say, well, we just don't need all that. We want this one thing done. And I say, that's great. And if it's something that I have a, uh, a relationship with someone else who can do that sort of work, I am okay referring that work out. But nine out of 10 of the times, they will come back and realize that working on an issue in isolation did not really solve their problem. <laughs> Because <laughs> it was multifaceted to begin yeah. with. Problems are usually not just one thing. One, it's not usually not one pipe that leaks. It's usually a network of pipes. Mm -hmm. 
the nonprofit then, so as they're calling you, they have to be open to the change. They need to be open to what you're going to be saying because you may say things that they don't like, at least initially. You know, you will be telling certain people what to do at a certain level. <laughs> I want to go back to that. But um, is there anything that the nonprofit or do you normally recommend a series of tasks that the nonprofit does before you are really getting your hands on? Like to do this assessment, there must be some pre-work that the nonprofit can do just to have a better first, second, third conversation with you so that you can start figuring out what are their, what is their current state before you can start looking at their future state. I will tell you that where we start is asking the organization about their pain point. Like, uh, you know, we, we want to know what's keeping you up at night. There's obviously something going on in your organization that is just really painful. <laughs> <laughs> and nine out of 10 of the times, a senior leader can just rattle it off. Yep, we got this, 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 this is, is painful. When you start with a pain point, then you have a different conversation versus um, having a general conversation about oh, how's your organization doing? Because that can go in so many different directions, right? But if I ask you, what are your pain points? And they say, we have high staff turnover and that's costing us a lot of money. And they say, we have a culture where every time we try to implement a new project or new initiative, it keeps falling flat. When we hear those pain points, then we can speak to those pain points about the, the possible issues that might be in play uh, for those pain points, right? So high staff turnover might be the result of a poor work environment, too many initiatives going on at one time, uh, employees feeling like they don't know what to do or they feel like they are overwhelmed with what to do and they can't get their work done. Um, we just you know throw those things out about possible reasons why they could have high staff turnover and some uh, leaders will know exactly. But from that, we can then um, talk about how it is that we need to assess the organization for determining whether or not those things that we believe are happening are actually happening. So in our assessment, we actually do a, a full staff uh, engagement survey that's not something that we would have an organization do on their own. They need someone that's outside the organization to conduct that survey, right? Right. Um, we talk to leaders who are responsible for, you know, policy and procedure development, who are responsible for budgets, who are responsible for uh, implementing new initiatives. We talk to them about their roles, about how those roles are designed, um, about how the work is being done, how, uh, about how the work is being um, evaluated. So we want to do this assessment to make sure that, one, we're asking questions that they wouldn't think to ask. And two, that we're getting information that may be unfiltered. Because <laughs> as soon as you start talking about, well, maybe you should do some internal reflection, sometimes that internal reflection can go awry. <laughs> because we may not have folks trained to, uh, to have those conversations well. <laughs> it has to be unfiltered, but you also want it to be valuable. It can't be just about uh, complaining all the time without right. a purpose. And but, you know, one thing that happens when you get some of that unfiltered, unbiased feedback is you can trend it. If everyone is having the same complaint, we're probably looking at an issue. <laughs> right. And so when we have those interviews, it's about trending information, not just aligning ourselves with their problems. Um, you don't want to get to the habit of, you know, I'm going to take someone's side because you're right. That shouldn't be happening in the organization. I'm really listening objectively to say, how many times has this come up? <laughs> um, how do we need to, how, how, how can we best move the organization beyond this? Because it seems to be weighing heavily on, on those individuals who have been interviewed. 
Uh, so we take that approach of, you know, trending information so that it's more objective, um, so that folks feel as though they're heard, but not necessarily ratted out. <laughs> that's, that's not the goal. <laughs> I was, my next question was actually, what are some, some valuable questions you ask? So I like these two. How many times has this turned up? Has this issue turned up? And how do we move beyond this point? Like it, they all seem to be related to one of my favorite questions, which is the why question. And then asking why at least, I think I said five times. You know, why do you think there is turnover, for example? You know? And why mm-hmm. is that? And then why is that? Why is that to get to the actual root cause? So mm-hmm. aside from these two questions, are there any other favorite questions you have that you tend to get excited about and anticipate a really good response? Well, I'll tell you one of the most eye-opening questions, not for me, but for the client. When I ask this question, they are just like, huh, let me think about this. I'll ask the question. And this is a simple question. It's not like, you know, something that's just, you know, you wouldn't find anywhere. But I say, so you, senior leader, and this could be a director over a particular department, um, a VP or not typically the CEO, because the CEO already has sort of this um, succession plan. But I say, if you were to leave your job today, would someone else be able to come in and pick up where you left off and be able to function um, excellently? And I I can't tell you how many times they'll say, well, I don't think I have a job description. (laughs) Because when I came into this role, actually so-and-so was doing this work, but that wasn't their main job. And my role was a culmination of two different roles and it just sort of organically happened. So I don't really think I have a formal job description or if they do, it's like, you know what? That job description doesn't even fit what I do today. So if I left today, I really should be keeping some sort of a desk manual on what it is that I do so that if someone ever came in and had to do this job, they would kind of know what the job is. Um, And that's eye opening. Right. That we talk about structure. Passion said, oh, we just need to get this work done today. Um, So and so came in and this is something that we need to to accomplish. Uh, Let's say uh, we had a complaint from a client and we need someone who's going to filter those complaints, make sure those complaints are um, documented, that we have a way of addressing them and moving them forward. An organization might just dump that on someone's lap and say, oh, so and so can handle it. And then that's typically how a role grows. And without having to stand back, step back a little bit to say, what does our organization need? And where are we focusing our efforts to make sure this work gets done? And whose job is it going to be? And have we updated job descriptions? And do we have performance evaluations that accurately reflect accurately reflect the work that we're doing? Then we're just heaping work on people and not knowing how much work they have on their plate, i.e. causes a lot of turnover. And and not even thinking that, you know, the fact that we don't have, you know, a job description or uh, or our current work fits our job description could be the reason for turnover is eye opening to many organizations. The so you do this assessment, you have mm-hmm. an audit, if you ask all these great questions, would you typically then go off into your corner up with your team, apply some of your uh, industry standards, best practices, mm-hmm. um, brainstorm, brain shopping, workshopping, brainstorming is what I wanted to say, <laughs> and, and then and then come back with recommendations. Or is even that portion of the decision making, brainstorming, 
process step involved? Do you involve like the nonprofit usually in that step? So we really, um, we do the assessment, right? We do the interviews, we do the surveys. Um, we are looking at sort of our best practices map, if you will, checking off the boxes. And then after we've had you know time to collect this data, we take it back uh, as a team, look at where they have opportunities. Um, and we have our own little tool that we use called the groundwork. And it helps us to understand how the organization is aligned so I, so we have three different components that we're looking at. We're looking at people, how people work together, processes, how work is done, and planning, which is how work is and data is being reported. Organizations can typically become unbalanced, right? There's an imbalance there where they may be really great on strategy, but not so good on people and process implementation. <laughs> they may be really good on people, but not so good on strategy. So our uh, assessment helps us to understand where their imbalance is. And when we look at what work is being done, where the imbalance is, we're going to give them, you know, six to eight, you know, things that they can do, initiatives that they can undergo to bring their organization back into an operational balance. And they can then take that um, high level strategy and implement it in their own organization. So the assessment isn't void of strategy. It's just that it's the first step in order to provide you with good strategy for where your organization um, maybe struggling and how we can help you fill in those gaps. But then they have, any organization has an opportunity for us to provide them with, you know, project management support. So we try to make sure that when we're working with organizations, we give them as many options as they need to get their organization up and running or back on track um, based on, you know, their own, you know, financial situation. So the assessment comes with strategy. But then if you need a consultant to manage this whole, whatever initiatives you decide to undergo, we provide that as well. But then we also find that there are some organizations who, even with the strategy, even with a consultant kind of managing the whole project for them, they don't have enough hands in the pot. They don't have enough people. So in that case, we could also add some administrative support services to make sure that there is someone to help get the work done. Because as a project manager, you're not actually going in, creating all the documents and moving all the things and storing all. You're not doing the grunt work or the groundwork of it. You're overseeing the project, right? Making sure everyone's on on the same page. But somebody still has to do that work. And so we also provide them with that, that administrative support if they need it. But ideally, if you start with a great plan, Right. You know, you have an assessment, you know where your organization needs to to change, you know what areas you need change in and you have a strategy to get there. That is half the battle. (laughs) And that's what we want to accomplish during our assessment phase. I was wondering if you could share a story without naming names, of course, but anything like a situation that happened where just to expand that or the example you used where the client wanted one thing and you said, hmm. And then they end up coming back. Is there any kind of stories in that kind of spirit where the client had one idea of doing things, you had to kind of flip their world around and either things went really well or really badly? Like, you know, one of these stories that you love sharing with people outside of the industry kind of thing to say, oh my goodness, I can't believe this happened for for either very positive reasons or very negative reasons. Well, let me, let me start with how we, how the groundwork assessment came to be. Because I think that's a very interesting story. So I was working with an organization. This is before, again, the the groundwork is the assessment tool that we use. And and I had not created it for our organization yet. But um, working with an organization that 
hired us specifically because and they were um, non-compliant. They'd had some kind of audit done from an agency, a governing agency locally, and they didn't pass the audit. They were non-compliant. And so they came to me and said, hey, we're not compliant in this particular part of our organization, just this one service area. And I said, okay, well, let's look and see how that service area is structured so that we can come up with a solution for getting you guys back into compliance. So I assessed the that one area of the organization, one service department, one program, and um, found that they're, you know, they were understaffed. They didn't have um, training um, done in a way that was manageable for staff. Uh, they didn't have um, document storage that was uh, virtual. They still had a lot of paper documents in the office and they had remote staff. So there were a lot of different things going on um, on top of looking at some of the metrics that they got dinged for, if you will, through that uh, audit. And so we came up with this great plan of, you know, this is uh, how we need to reorganize, restructure. This is how we need to roll it out. This is, you know, the training that needs to be done for the staff. And this is um, what what is going to best um, get you to where you need to be so that when you have this audit again, you'll pass it with flying colors. And we're like, great, we can do that. And they took the plan and I think they implemented it. (laughs) They came back six months later and was like, we didn't pass. So you didn't do a good job. I said, so did you hire the staff? Well, that was, I didn't know that was in the plan. Did you uh, follow through with, you know, the new implementation of the software that we talked about? Well, we couldn't afford to do that right then. So we just did something else. Well, did you actually have like management meetings and staff meetings to continue to move this forward? Well, no, we didn't have time for all that. Nice. And if I had had a a deeper dive than just this one department, I would have known that other departments in the organization didn't value the work that was being done in that one department. So they put it on the back burner to do other things because they were they had too many projects on their plate. Mm. So then it became, well, you didn't you know, you didn't give us a good plan because, you know, it didn't work. And I'm thinking, well, you guys didn't work the plan. But now I know why. Your senior leader was not uh, a, um, a champion for this project. You guys are never in your offices. You always have other priorities. Um, you did not, you know, hire additional staff. I mean, there are so many things. And if again, if I had had the groundwork assessment, then I could have easily identified some of those cultural nuances that were impacting why they were not passing an audit, not just specifically that department. When you think about a service department, it's supported by a finance department, an IT department, um, the governance structure, your HR department, um, your facilities. All of those are administrative departments that impact how services are performed. And the groundwork looks at your administrative departments (laughs) so that we we can understand how it is that services are going to be impacted and how services are, are supported. And had, you know, having had that experience, I was like, never again. We are not doing that. <laughs> um, and, and that's how groundwork came to be. Um, and we could still give someone a great strategy and, you know, for what it is that, that the pain point is that, that's come up in our sessions and they not um, 
implement it. But at that point, they can come back and say, hey, we think we need your implementation services because we've already offered that at this point. (laughs) Um, And so that makes things a little more straightforward um, when it comes to what we offer and how it is that we can actually serve clients well. The takeaway then is nothing is in isolation. There's You have to look nothing. at the bigger picture. You have to see the holistic image of it. Otherwise, no matter how good intentions you may have, no matter how awesome the plan is, uh, it may fall, fall, may fail for other reasons beyond the scope of the, um, the plan. Yeah. And I think that's the big piece about operations, right? It's broad. If you just, not just, but if you called someone in because you wanted to, let's say, change your uh, platform from one accounting software to another, right? Let's say you were using um, QuickBooks and now you want to move to Intac. That is a very specific project, right? And someone can come in and make that happen for you. They can tell you that you're going to need to, you know, um, pull all the data out of one system, put it into a new system based on how you want those reports to look. Um, They can tell you that, you know, you're going to need some controls as to who's going to have access to this data. Um, And they can just make this happen for you. But what they are not going to do is solve your issues surrounding bad data in means bad data out. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. So if you are thinking that you're moving from from QuickBooks to Intact because the reports, the data on reports are bad. Changing systems is not going to do that. I see Changing it all the time. processes will. <laughs> yep. I see it all the time with Salesforce projects where they think Salesforce is going to be in some magical tool that will solve all their problems. And usually you take the problems with you. Right. I liken it to if you were going to build a house, you first want a blueprint before you go out and buy equipment. Most people will go out and buy equipment and want it to build a house. They're <laughs> like, that's not how this works. that's not how this works at all. What we want to do is have a blueprint. We want to know where we're going and then we're going to build our operations to make sure we get there. So in the words operational culture, we focused a lot on operational side of things. Let's talk about culture for a second. And you did mention it recently and cultural elements. So what is the cultural part of the operational culture? So I know I coined, I think I coined this term. I don't know that other people use it um, in the way that I use it. So when I talk about operational culture, remember I talked about those three pieces, how people work together, how people actually perform the work, and then how that work is recorded for strategy and planning purposes. When you have an imbalance in the organization, it does produce a certain type of culture. We have what we call the seven archetypes of culture, if you will. And what we're trying to do is get people to an ideal culture where you're balancing the aspects of this people, the processes and the strategy for your organization. If you, for example, in our archetypes, the ideal operational culture is one archetype, but you could have an archetype that is, um, and I think we talked about one of these already, where you're heavily skewed towards strategy and planning, right? And we call that archetype the secret society (laughs) because typically what happens in this particular type of culture is that there is a leader who has just really strong on strategy, but not processes and people. 
So because they can't necessarily get outside of their own heads, sometimes people who follow them are only the people who kind of get them. You ever been in that situation where the leader is surrounded by people who just get them because there's not a real documented way of getting those ideas and thoughts out of their heads into the organization? So they surround themselves with people who just get them. And those people who get them are the ones who try to document and keep things going. But they just it all depends on if they get the person. (laughs) The in crowd. So so that's that whole secret society. They are strategy focused. They tend to operate more like a dictatorship in the governing practices, um, whereas the chief officer has the vision in his or her head, but not well documented for others to follow. Um, it creates this governing clique, like you just said, in the organization, but based on a select group of people who get the senior leader and can be trusted with his or her ideas. Um, the organization has the potential to be a market leader, right? Due to its strengths in strategy and agility, but rarely make it to the market leader status. Or if they do, it's short lived because those who are charged with leading are really not empowered to. They just have to get the senior leader. And so, you know, people in this organization tend to be timid and exercising authority um, because they probably slapped on the wrist a time or two. Like, you didn't get me. That's not it. Don't do it that way. <laughs> and when you slap people on the wrist too many times, they just, you know, they're just going to fall back and just, you know, come get to the space of just tell me what you want me to do. And we see that. And that's because of the imbalance. You don't have the processes or the structure with people to really capitalize on the strategies that are there. And we can find that in the assessment that we do from groundwork based on what's actually in place and being used. Right. So job descriptions, performance evaluations, um, are there, um, is there a strategy for, um, I know that many organizations have strategic plans, but are you actually using it? It hasn't been updated. Do you roll it out every year? Um, how are people's jobs, you know, impacted by it? So we're looking at that because when we, when we do that assessment and we see that the organization is leaning toward everything's the senior leader, you know, everything stops at the top. <laughs> just, it just doesn't work. And so culture really is about how it is, you know, our shared beliefs, our shared practices, um, the way that we think as an organization is our culture. And the way that we run the organization is our culture. So if we have a, a culture of not making decisions, that's a culture, right? <laughs> and so we know that culture is an apex predator. It is the predator that doesn't have another predator. So if you have culture that goes unaddressed, poor culture that goes unaddressed, it doesn't matter how many consultants you bring in. You're always going to have the same outcome because we haven't assessed how we can really involve cultural change into this new process or this new project or this new initiative. And that's what makes us different from other operations uh, consulting firms is that we are big on transforming organizations culturally so that you can operate more efficiently. Seven archetypes. So we only mentioned one or two. I mean, I'm looking at the time as well. I'm not sure we have time to go through all the other ones. So I'd rather actually shift gears a little bit and ask the question because it's a really hot topic these days, of course, is AI. And I'm curious mm. just to know if you if you incorporate AI in any of your work that you do in, in helping you leverage certain things that might be done, or do you, in some instances, recommend AI, using AI, uh, so that nonprofits can be more 
um, more powerful, I guess is the word I'll use. You know, this AI conversation has come up on several different occasions and we are in the process of sort of researching kind of where we stand uh, as an organization with AI, because I do know that in many of the applications that uh, my nonprofit clients are using, AI is already embedded in a lot of that and they haven't quite realized at to what degree and they're struggling with some of the ethical issues from a community service standpoint. For example, uh, I was talking to a colleague in the nonprofit space who was their organization provides resources, loans to those in the community who are disadvantaged and are typically not able to receive, you know, loan money for you know, startup businesses or uh, even to maintain business revenue or whatever the case may be. And the applicate they use a system that sorts through applications and they realize that because of ai there are some opportunities for fake applications to get in um they're not sure if their processor is using ai to determine who is sort of getting into their systems and is it causing more of an issue with equity than before <laughs> right so, you know, there's a there's a lot to think about when it, in terms of how AI is going to be used um, and is being used and how much we're privy to know what's being done. And so that's probably the most conversation, if you will, that I've had about AI with my clients, um, just trying to understand where they are struggling with it so that we can provide resources to help with that. And we're just not there yet where we feel like we have enough resources under our belt to say, yes, you should use AI for this because it's not going to do X, Y, and Z to compromise the integrity of your organization uh, and, and the ethics in which you want to, you know, perform your services. And so we we are just in that phase of really researching and understanding how this impacts the nonprofits that sector, especially because of uh, equity issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting question because it's, you know, obviously it's still relatively new and people are still trying to figure out how to incorporate it. Like they know it's important. They know it's, it can be used in some way, but how to actually incorporate it into your work, whether it's you yourself, again, your services you provide or your, your clients, the idea is, you know, what do we do with this cool, shiny new toy that for sure is going to have a, a large impact? And, and you know, that there's a lot of fear. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, you know, trying to have conversations so that we can all understand the one, how it works to where it can best serve your organization and three, how it is that we can, you know, share our, our knowledge with each other. Um, but definitely AI is is still so new that many people are afraid to even start having some of those conversations because of, you know, not knowing um, where they stand on some of the ethical issues. Um, so that's what I see in, in my sphere. Now, people in other parts of the world might be thinking things about things a little differently, uh, but for me, that's where we are. Uh, Miriam, this has been great. I'm curious because we didn't talk about the other archetypes. I'm sure people will have questions and be curious about it. Where can people <laughs> find out more about you, your organization, and maybe uh, have some follow-up questions for you? So we try to have a pretty robust presence on LinkedIn. So you can go to 180 Management Group, just kind of search us there on LinkedIn. Um, you can look for me on LinkedIn as well. I think 
because I <laughs> I have some support in making sure that LinkedIn is, is working like it needs to. But I believe my profile is Miriam Perryman Dix on LinkedIn. So <laughs> feel free to reach out there. If you ever want, you know, more information about 180 Management Group or anything like that, you can also reach us online at uh, 180managementgroup.com. You can request information. Um, there's some information already, I think, on the website as well for you to dig into, uh, learn more about groundwork and some of the other things that we provide. Um, and we all we are offering, you know, uh, throughout the year different opportunities for cohorts. So right now we are getting ready to launch an, an effective communications cohort that is is free. Um, and we'll do that a couple of times a year to, you know, make sure that we provide services to our nonprofit clients that are cost effective, right? So what's more cost effective than free? So we'll have, we'll have those things, you know, throughout the year. Um, but definitely check us out on LinkedIn, check out our website, and you can also find me directly. Awesome. Miriam, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you, Alex. It's been a great time. All right, that's it for today. I'm Alexander Lapa, and I hope you join me again in the next Agents of Nonprofit.